You're, you're gonna scroll the. Oh. Bam. Hello, everyone, Hello. and welcome hey. to another episode of Celluloid Breakdown. Uh, with us, as always, Shafar. Mr. Sean Faw. I am Joey Bonnier, and we have a special guest this week. We have Mr. Graham Tallman. What's up? Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. So glad to have you here, Graham. Um, and you brought with you a really good pick, I thought. You picked Double Indemnity. I did indeed. Uh, Billy Wilder directing this flick. Is this our second Wilder? This is our second Wilder. Mm. Yeah, we did uh, Sunset Boulevard before. Ah, also a good one. Yes, it was great. Um, let's uh, let's not beat around the bush, guys. Let's dive right in. So um, let's quickly go over just a basic synopsis, Sean, if we can uh, do that. And Graham, obviously, you can jump in whenever you want. Sure. You know, just <laughs> let him. Right on. Uh, okay. Oh, what? <laughs> no? No? Okay. So, uh, yeah, uh, this is a movie about an insurance salesman. Yay. Um, I mean, quite honestly... You know, one of the most interesting movies about an insurance salesman. But we'll get to all of that. So uh, we start with a gentleman that is, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, looks like he's a little disheveled. He's in an office. He's talking into a dictaphone, or actually it's a, um, uh, a wax cylinder recorder, which is actually pretty sweet. Um, but he's kind of going through his his story of how he had gotten there. And we come to find out that he is an insurance salesman or insurance agent. And uh, he's going to try and meet with one of his current clients to uh, re-up the renewal for the auto policy. Seems to be avoiding his calls or just hard to get a hold of businessman type thing. So he does what any good insurance agent would do and knock on the door. Um, He is greeted by the uh, youngish wife who is... I don't want to say scantily clad. I mean, she's completely covered by the towel, but it's definitely implied well, it's, that, yeah. like, that. I mean, she just came in from sunbathing, so she was know. flirty as well. Yeah, there's definitely some. Uh, yeah, I guess flirty is the she, right sure. word. She was wearing an ankle bracelet, so you know that's yeah. Uh, she wasn't naked. So, <laughs> that yeah. anklet really did yeah. it for him. Yeah, I don't know what is with the guy with that anklet, man. Like, I, <laughs> I think it's a foot thing. I think he's got. Oh, a, I think he's got a foot thing. It's a Tarantino thing. That makes sense. Um, so yeah, yeah uh, she goes and puts on some clothes and comes down and says her husband's not there, but she'd be you know happy to meet with them later. Uh, tells him to come back when the husband's going to be there. Then changes the date um or I, I guess moves it back a little bit uh before he leaves he's a little uh you know aggressive with a married woman that he's trying to yeah. get some money out of her husband but uh we'll leave that as it may be and uh you know he goes back to the office yada 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 then uh he goes back and meets her again he's supposed to be meeting the uh the husband as well but he doesn't show what a coincidence and uh things kind of get awkward and uh um sexual predatory and uh it turns to talk of accident insurance uh it seems that the uh the young missus is looking for some way of getting an accident policy on her husband Mm -hmm. without him necessarily knowing about it uh our fair hero is, um, you know, kind of uh, wise to her game and uh, a little off put by her and, uh, you know, kind of tells her so and retreats, but he can't stop thinking about her. And, uh, um, you know, there is uh, still that sort of sexual tension, but, you know, he's trying to be 
a good person, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> no, he's yeah. He had a little voice of the good character inside of. He even said, "I thought hard about it, but I didn't think hard enough." Keys. Yeah, yeah. I don't put any uh, positive F- F spin on his motives. You know, he's totally in it for wrong reasons. I mean, what are the right reasons for murder? <laughs> <laughs> he, it was it was that it was that debate period after he left the house mm. before she came. Yeah. That was his only uh, redeemable moment of the movie, which much. is about five minutes or less. <laughs> Everything else is yeah yeah yeah. So later th- later that night or another night, I'm not sure how much time passes there. It was pretty soon after. Right on. Yeah, uh, she just shows up at his uh, house or apartment house, as it were, um, and uh, you know forces her way in. There's, again, this weird sort of sexual tension dance they do. And she, I guess she kind of comes clean and just like pretty much just asks him to, you know, be all shady and murder her husband. Um, And they kiss and it's, I guess he's obsessed and infatuated enough to go forward with this plan. Immediately. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. they figure out how to, uh, during the renewal of the auto policy, they slip in an extra document, have them sign up for the accident policy as well. And then Mr. Insurance Man's all like, hey, you know what? If he dies on a train, that's double indemnity. So, you know, you get twice as much for dying on a train. (laughs) Uh, So they, you know, try and figure out and orchestrate a way to have him killed on a train, but it is a weird sort of convoluted mess of strangling him in a car and then dumping his body on the train tracks while our hero pretends to be him with a cast and crutches and kind of uh, jumps off the back of a train and like one of the weirdest sort of stunt flops I think I've ever seen. <laughs> it was awkward. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, kind of hijinks ensue and everyone's kind of accusing everyone. Um, the insurance adjusters do not believe it or don't want to pay out. So they, you know, really start digging into things, trying to figure out, you know, how that policy uh, can be null and voided. Um, the mm. president, Mr. Uh, Edward Norton, uh, <laughs> decides that he is going to uh, pursue the suicide route, um, indicating that the husband was, you know, suicidal and there was an accident previous and, you know, kind of that he was depressed and stuff. That doesn't really go over. And she actually plays it really good in that situation. She kind of just goes on the offensive and accuses him of, you know, total douchebaggery for, you know, like the day after her husband dies, dragging her into an insurance office about a policy she didn't know existed and shit so from there i guess there's just kind of like inner turmoil for most of the characters um he kind of starts dating the daughter of the guy and yeah (laughs) that's a weird sort of twist there Mm -hmm. um but yeah, he says he's trying to save her, of course, from getting into this horrible situation. But he's such a good redeeming yeah, savior. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he's, he's trying again, his best. Yeah, he really is in it for the right reasons yeah. there. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> in the him. end, basically, he uh, <laughs> finds out that the daughter's boyfriend is actually dating the uh, the wife that he is uh-huh. trying to kill the husband of. And he is all distraught because he thought he was the only one she was cheating with. And so he decides he has to go and kill her. And then I think he was going to set up the boyfriend, but then changed his mind at the last moment yeah. and gives him a nickel and tries to like set him up with the girlfriend again or the daughter again yeah. and uh, send him on his way. Then he crawls his ass back to the um, insurance office where we first met him. We discover that he is bleeding and has in fact been shot. She tried to shoot him twice. Only one made it, I guess. Uh, or she shot him the no, first she, time and she didn't shoot him the second right, time. Yeah. Um, and then he 
Did he shoot her with his gun or did no? She he her used gun. her gun yeah. twice. He, he, he shot her twice. He pulled okay. it away from yeah. her when they were kind of hugging. That's, yeah, she, she couldn't shoot the second time because she really was feeling emotions for him finally, mm. and oh, he yeah. did not have those emotions now. So he has now totally. gone full circle and is like, "I can shoot you twice, no problem." <laughs> <laughs> twists, lots yeah. of twists and yeah, turns yeah, yeah, in yeah. love. Exactly That's the, the character arc here. Yeah. yeah, so he leaves her on the couch, crawls back to the insurance office, and wraps up his little dictaphone conversation there. Uh, turns out his buddy was. Uh, outside the door the whole time and just kind of listening to this whole narration. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, I guess, goes to jail? Yeah, I, yeah. He collapses right yeah, before he gets, he tries to leave. He tries to go to Mexico. Or he, or he dies, right? Because they, they sort oh, of, are, yeah. they're sort of insinuating that he didn't want to go to the hospital and right. get patched up. He I wanted suppose. to just like end it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he knows he was. He said he was going to the death chamber or the, oh, sorry, right. gas, the, chamber. the, the yeah. gas chamber. Yeah, yeah, he was pretty sure. And apparently, little first little trivia. Apparently, they shot that scene. They shot the scene oh. where he went to the gas chamber. Oh, really? Yeah, and that's how they originally ended the movie. Wow. And then they they went back and they decided it's more of an emotional, a little beat too depressing. For, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> for the sort of mentor father like figure of Keys to have this little moment with him on the floor, and that was like a, a sweeter way to end this. It was a sweet like note trail. to end on. Yeah. It was it was strange because it wasn't definitely a sweet movie right. um, in any way, right. I guess. I mean, it is a love story. It was pretty sweet. It was supposed to be a love story. I, I The music seemed like that. I don't know. but the, the music implied a lot of the love story. We'll, we'll the get romance. to that later, yeah. but... Um, Overall, um, Graham, let's let's quickly talk about why you picked this film. Is was there yeah. a specific reason why? Yeah, I mean, if you're talking pre 1960, Billy Wilder's for sure my favorite. I mean, you've got Orson Welles, of course, and, and a few others. But if you, but if you take the sort of the body of work, I'd say he's got to be number one. I think the reasons are the, the reasons for me that this movie holds up is number one, I never have a dull moment in it. I always feel like there's a lot of tension and drama with all these sort of machinations of the plot that are happening. Um, I love, I think Billy Wilder's sort of sardonic dark humor is sort of more modern maybe. So it's like, you know, we kind of get a feeling that um, it's like, it's a sensibility that was really dark at the time. And now it feels like, yeah, of course, this is like, you know, how we do things. Um, It does seem very modern in that sort of, uh, that like almost always sunny Philadelphia uh, in Philadelphia sort of feel like that. Yeah. Just this this is a wretched horrible person that we're just gonna kind of enjoy hanging <laughs> right. out with for a while. Right. right. Like they, they don't linger on too many jokes. They, yeah. You know the jokes no. are the jokes. You right. Know, they don't like oh let's let's pause for you mm-hmm. know. No no, no yeah yeah it, for, the, for that's I think that's probably the other reason is it's got that like film noir poetry. Mm. You know what I mean? It's kind of, the, the the rhythm of their speech and the lines are so great. Um, so I just think it's it's like so snappy and it's so yeah. fun and it just kind of like still for me jumps off the screen. Um, it's it's yeah. like snappy in a way that like um, uh, have you seen uh, His Girl Friday? So yeah. one we watched recently. Right. Um, but like th- that had that snappy dialogue, but it seems so prepared and planned. Right. Like each person right. was waiting for their turn to talk right. more so than this one was like snappy, but realistic realistic in a way that like those other sort of you know 20s 
that fast talk and dialogue movies don't yeah. usually have. It's funny you mentioned, I, was, I wrote that down too. Basically like His Girl Friday is just an extreme version of this to mm, the extent that like right. all the dialogue is over sped up. Yeah. So it's like, you can't take a moment to really get what they're saying. This was pretty good at what you're right. There was moments where it was like a little too snappy to be realistic, but I loved it. I thought that was, it was nice. It wasn't unrealistic yeah. in the sense that it was like a Sorkin-esque kind of. Yeah. I, yeah. I say that at fucking, you should drink because I say that every fucking <laughs> podcast. <laughs> right. But it was, it was very Sorkin-esque because it wasn't too fast to not get the characters and get all the you know subtext behind all the other lines. Yeah. But it is also a lot of the same voice behind all of those characters. Yeah, yeah. I'll buy it. Yeah, way. for sure. Yeah. And it's it's definitely a sort of heightened, stylized yeah. way. It's sort of very, it's, it's movie world, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're not, we're not trying to, uh, you know, recreate the world of Los Angeles in 1944. This mm-hmm. is like, this is the movie world in 1944. Mm-hmm. This is a, a new genre, basically, right? I mean, film noir, some people say this is the first ever film noir that was mm. filmed. Some people say there was a, a few others before it, mm. but for sure the like, um, you know, the blinds causing yeah. the light rays and, Lots of and, shadows and the femme fatale who's yeah, like, yeah. you know, using her sexual prowess to mm. kind of uh, ensnare the the hapless, you know, <laughs> protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also I think that the, this was the first or one of the first times where the entire movie was about how to plan a murder, mm. which at that time was really risky. And a lot of like actors turned it down because they were like, I can't do this. This is like, yeah. n- you know, yeah, this like time, you know, so you- and yeah. So, um, Graham, now I know you're kind of a, you're, you're a writer, you're a director, you're kind of a lot of different things. Um, and I kind of, when I was watching this movie, I thought a lot about you because oh. you, we were talking earlier about, you know, working within the forms. We we're talking about Joker and uh-huh. we we're talking about how now you kind of have to work within that superhero context. Right, right, right. <laughs> and right. it made me think of that because this was like a very interesting, snappy kind of story that was taking risks within a noir context. You know, it kind of worked within that form. Yeah. Um, which I like. And it's almost like a Western in that sense. You know, not a Western, but it has that specific, mm. tro- has to hit the tropes, you know, like you yeah. kind of mentioned a few of them right there. Yeah. So I thought it hit them, but it kind of was willing to take writing chances yeah. you know what I mean well and, and if you add, I, apparently Billy Wilder the, when he made this movie they'd never heard of the term film noir mm-hmm. right and so he was like I was just sort of directing it and they worked on the script together um, I was directing as I thought that it should be expressed because of the content and the material I wasn't thinking I had to fit a trope but that kind of invented the tropes yeah, yeah, do you yeah, know yeah. what I mean so it's kind of interesting how he was just being intuitive and then through that it kind of there was so many people that copied him after that it's interesting you say that too, because I noticed at the beginning there wasn't that specific voiceover. And all the noirs I've watched, and again, I've just seen like kind of the classics, it always opens with some voiceover. This actually didn't. It was kind of led right into a close up of the guy. And then you got the voiceover later, which I thought was kind of interesting. I felt like people kind of took that and like overdid it, almost like this is one of the first to do it and they didn't quite understand it. They kind of like, you know, it's right. like someone doing auto tune and then, <laughs> right. then T Pain abuses it, right. you know? You know, I think that's a, a definitely an apt analogy, but the, I mean, to me that like, it was just, it was narration. It was voiceover. It's just, we were seeing him in this. Where it was, that's that. true. But but that, that's a big difference to me. The, the fact that you can see the character's face immediately and he's the main character, you know, you can get all the, yeah. the content, especially because that scene, you know, wraps around. So it's double. Oh, sorry. I'm going to try to avoid this. Part. <laughs> but that's almost kind of the same thing that we get in um, uh, Sunset Boulevard. I mean, we, mm-hmm. uh, it's the, the, obviously it's the dead perspective. It's the, right. uh, spoiler alert, it's the, um, uh, American beauty sort of style, but it's that I, you know, same sort of thing. Um, we're just not seeing his, seeing him move his lips in that one. Right. That's true. 
And I think that movie came after this one, right? So this is the one. I thought Sunset was before. Sunset's 1950. So this one's 1944. So this this is the one where they started with that idea. Because I don't think that was the novel, the James K. novel. I don't think that was the the device that they used. Mm. I think that sort of that was what Billy Wilder brought to it. And then he was like, well, we've got a guy who's dying. So Mm. why not do a guy who's dead? And it was like the sort of escalation of that idea. Um, I, I, when I watched the beginning of this, I always wonder, like they give away pretty much everything at the mm-hmm. beginning. Right. Yeah. And it's like, okay, um, I'm a murderer. Uh, <laughs> I didn't get the girl and I'm, you know, possibly going to die. Yep. Um, do you think that that helped the movie or do you think that that was like, would it be better or worse without it? Honestly, I was questioning that as it was happening. I'm like, you know, it's like flipping to the last page in the book before right. you start reading it. And I don't think it affected my my viewing of the movie, really. Mm-hmm. I think, like, um, honestly, I kind of forgot how horrible or how bad he told us it was mm-hmm. until it actually kind of unfolded. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I was just stuck in the story enough that, like, yeah, I like that setup and I like coming back to it. And I like kind of like almost the fact that they did distract me enough. You know, it's like a magician kind of like, you know, putting right. that setup, then look over here and then, you know, oh shit, I totally forgot. You told me to look there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I completely agree with you, Sean. I, I liked the way, and I was caught up in the story. I didn't quite like think about, oh, this is what they're revealing now. Yeah. But I thought that when I look back on it, I was really impressed with the way they basically withheld the audience, mm-hmm. you know, and then you know more than the characters at yeah. the end. You know, when Edward G. Robinson's character is trying to figure out, you're like, you're almost there, buddy. You know, you're, <laughs> you're getting close, you know? And I like that. You're playing with the audience a lot, you know, and it's two different movies in that sense because mm-hmm. you don't really know how they're going to kill him. Like you're going through almost right like Ocean's Eleven style, but you don't have right. any of the planning. Yeah. I mean, you do have a little bit. They give you hints, right. but you don't really know that like he's going to jump off the back of the train exactly and like try to hide his face and all that. So I liked that. It was kind of revealing as we were going through it, um, which, you know, was just added to the story. But again, I didn't think about it uh, along right. the way. I was yeah. just enjoying it. Yeah, for, for me, I think it, it really kickstarts the movie. Like, I was questioning it also, but I, I was like, the, the first the first sort of 15 minutes before we know that this is going to turn into a, a, a murder mystery or something like that, we, it, 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 it sort of upfront tells you that this that you should be feel suspense in these scenes, mm-hmm. you know? So if it's like right in the opening where you might have those casual calm scenes that are drawing us into the movie, already there's a tension totally. because we're, we yeah. know more than the characters know. And so we know, oh, well, this is going to happen here. And there's already that feeling like, don't, you know, talk to Barbara yeah. Stanger at the top of the stairs, you know, stop talking about the bracelet because this is going to lead to horrible, horrible places. And so there's always that underlying dread, mm. I, th- I feel like, with the tone. So I think that sort of, sort of helps. And then the only other thing I, I, I think it might help with is like, it's really hard to find someone to grab onto and care about mm. in this movie. Yeah. And when you, if you know from the beginning that he mm. is sort of a victim in a certain makes way, him a little sympathetic. it makes him a little more sympathetic. We know things didn't go well. We know yeah. he feels bad about it. And we know like maybe he regrets what we're about to watch. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of makes you feel like, yeah, I can see following this character. Cause, and not only that, we are hearing his inner voice. Like we're mm. hearing, um, what he's saying, uh, it almost as you're saying, like is in a narration. Yeah. So we're hearing that maybe he didn't feel so great about it. Well, yeah. I mean, as you were saying that, I was basically just realizing that, uh, yeah, even if I don't remember all the details of how bad it was, I still felt that. And like, right. if we had just dived into an insurance salesman showing up at someone's house, I don't think there would have been, you know, as much of so the caring about anything. So yeah, I think actually that the, it is definitely required. Right. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. First impressions are pretty goddamn totally. important. And you're, yeah. if, he's, if he's that slick, douchey salesman, you yeah. know, you, you immediately think. And now, to be honest, I didn't like him at all. So it didn't, <laughs> didn't really work for me. Right. But uh, I, I appreciate them trying to make him more likable. Um, and, you know, they have to. This is an interesting movie in that sense because you're right. No one is really redeemable at all. I guess right. Edward G. Robinson's character, yeah. uh, he's pretty much the law. Yeah, I mean, he's he's the most respectable. Like, even the president, uh, Edward Norton, is uh, a kind of a dick. Like, yeah, 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 sucks. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't like him either. Uh, yeah. yeah, and he even says he's got a big office. Everyone with a big yeah, office. Yes. Right. Yeah, he's them. got that weird voice. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone in an office. Yeah, they have. Yeah, it's because of the echo in the office. And right. It's just how it happens. That's true. Uh, so Graham, how would you, I guess you kind of mentioned a little bit of it earlier, but does this, is this, so it's kind of considered like a proto-noir, if you will. Does it, how does it stack up for you against others? Do, do you like this better than others? Is I mean, it, I do like it better than others for, I love Billy Wilder's voice. He's one of my favorites. Um, so for sure, I feel like, uh, it's got all the beats you need. It's, you know, the, the great characters, the great dialogue, the great look. I mean, obviously it was updated through the years. So you've got like body heat and mm. postman always rings twice. And, um, uh, the long goodbye, right? Mm. So it's completely different voices. Like Robert Altman doing a noir <laughs> and Wilder doing a noir, compl completely yeah. different. Wait, which so was Altman? That was the long goodbye. Oh, really? With oh, wow. uh, Elliot Gould. He, okay. uh, he directed that one. Um, and they're all based on these these hard-boiled writers. There's like Dashiell Hammett and James Cain and Raymond Chandler and and, and these guys. So, um, and Post Rings always rings twice. So I think it's interesting that through the years it changes. Okay. Uh, you know, um, L.A. Confidential being one of the hmm. more recent ones, it was like a real hearkening back to this. But I think that there's something to be said for going back to like the core, uh, mm -hmm. you know, of how, when this started and what it was about back mm. then. Um, there is something very pure about it. It's very uncontrived. Right. It just like it feels like it is because it is rather right. than like has to follow a formula. I right. definitely felt that it was. Yeah, it really wasn't like trying to. Yeah, fit in these little yeah. boxes and check all the boxes. No, it felt more natural than that. I thought. Uh, I, I also love L.A. Uh, as a setting. <laughs> I know this is such an L.A. thing to say. I, I love seeing places I've lived and been, but it is cool just seeing old L.A. It's such a different fucking city. It's yeah. it's yeah. empty. The people. It's like. He was saying how it was similar compared to Iowa. He said people from it's LA like, are like from Iowa. I'm all like, Los Angelinos are from Iowa what? originally. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I thought that was a transplant joke. I, I, yeah. I guess so Even too. Even back but then, yeah. everyone came from the Midwest well, yeah, or something. Yeah, right? exactly. But it seems so crazy now to say like they have Midwest sensibilities. If you, I don't know. That's what I kind of got. Mm. But I guess right. he's right. It's just a transplant joke. You know, no one's from LA. Right. That's but, how I read it. But yeah. You're probably right. Um, I don't. The, the setting for noir seems to frequently be LA. But this That's wasn't true. like the underbelly of LA. It was it was a nicer. I mean, this is also like you know when Hollywood was Hollywood and shooting in LA was a, a feature, not a bug. <laughs> like it was, right. you know, it was showing off LA as tinsel. Like it's only now in probably the last ten years, mostly because we live here. But it, you know, LA is just kind of like kind of the shithole like right. it's not something that people you know hold up as being glamorous anymore but back in the day i mean you know that was the the entire appeal of it so shooting in la was you know part of the the entire glamour of the studio and star system yeah and I, but I, and i think through the lighting though it didn't feel mm -hmm. your traditional la yeah. it, it, they were trying to do that noir so it's like what's in the shadows yeah. what why are all these slits of light coming into the rooms and making everything look like they're imprisoned or something like so even though it was la it was kind of a shot 
shot differently than you'd expect. I think I don't know. It, there's differences between the out the you know the exteriors, the interiors. I think for sure, the exteriors to me were just like traditional. We're looking at this beautiful house on the hills yeah. kind yeah. of thing. But then you're right. When you get inside, it was the slats and the you know, the cookie cutter stuff. Yeah. And cookie cutter. I mean with lighting. Yeah. And it's interesting. God that damn it. Lord. Thank you. <laughs> lighting guy. It's interesting they chose LA as the setting because I think this is based on a true story that happened in New York. So yeah. it actually was a, a East Coast um, scam that mm. they then transplanted into being Los Angeles. So. That, that that makes sense to me. It's a very East Coast thing to 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 think up some crazily you know overly intricate plan, even though it's fucking stupid. All right. You know that's that's something I can see a Philadelphia person doing. <laughs> And it was definitely before CSI Crime Lab, right? Like they oh, yeah. couldn't tell that this guy was strangled. Like there yeah. was no marks on the neck to How know about that fingerprints. Is anyone yeah. fucking dust is for fingerprints? Like, is that is that a thing? That's a thing, right? Well, the, I mean, right. the other thing is all this investigation is the insurance company. The end of the movie is calling the cops in. Right. But like you know that to me, that's the kind of the weirdest thing about this movie is it like it reads like a detective movie, but it's insurance <laughs> right. you know insurance is like yeah. in my mind just like the boringest job in the world like right. it is you know office pencil pusher i mean i, I did insurance for like 10 years so like oh, you know brag. Uh, <laughs> exactly, yeah. um you know some of the claims adjusters certainly got to have fun but in general like you know you hear you're gonna see a movie about insurance and you're not like let's go um, and so it, in your in your time insurance did you not think of murder <laughs> only murder most foul um what's funny is he said the claims adjusters were the pencil pushers and the mm. salesmen were like the cool cats yeah. that got to walk down the street and hit right. the doorbells yep, right. it's totally different now yeah uh -huh. yeah uh um i mean obviously the most part uh the most fun team would be the cat team which is the catastrophe team that's the team that like would fly into every time there is a uh um you know giant uh natural disaster and whatnot so i mean like you know there are portions of it that are somewhat adventurous and actually like you know feel like you're helping people but for the most part it's a horrible horrible industry um yeah i guess this is this you know just like some other movies like there's modern romance for foley artists there's not many yeah, movies yeah. for insurance sales right. this yeah. is one of the few so i'm glad you have that sean yeah. <laughs> no, you deserve yeah. it <laughs> um, so let's talk about that insurance salesman, uh -oh. uh, Walter. Mm -hmm. uh, how, what, how did you how did you think he did as a you know as an actor? <laughs> I, I don't know. What do you think, Sean? Um, the, the, let's talk about the acting first. Then, oh, not the character. Well, go, I mean, whatever you want, whatever the fuck you want. Sean. I mean, the character felt like uh, uh, you know one of those like rules of the game sort of guys, or those uh, um, you know like I just feel like today it would have been you know some ultra player like you know, playboy grease ball sort of, you know, yeah. um, it's just, yeah, very smarmy and just kind of like overly, um, aggressive, but I don't know how much of that is just the generation we're in now and how much of that is like, you know, this guy is supposed to be a, you know, horrible person in this movie. Like that, that was one yeah. of the questions I literally had in this movie is, are we supposed to like this guy? Because I'm not sure right. through the lens of history def or the lens, you know, looking back at this, definitely not. But from being, if I was sitting in that theater in 1945, when this came out, I mean, I think he's supposed to be the hero. I think he's supposed to be the sure. guy we all want to be. Sure. Uh, Graham, what do you think of Fred McMurray as Walter Neff, the main character there? 
Yeah, I mean, apparently, you know, uh, Billy Wilder like asked a whole bunch of other people. Everyone said no because it was too <laughs> too dark of t- t- territory. And then uh, he was a, a comedic actor, and, mm, and they okay. they talked him into doing this. Um, I think he's great in it because yeah. he's kind of like I don't know, his suit doesn't fit right, and he's kind of like <laughs> in this little uh, you know apartment in in Los Feliz or Hollywood, and um, you know. I, I think he did a great job. I, I, I sense from your, you, maybe you weren't so impressed with his performance. That, that, okay, so I think it's a tough role to play, to be honest, it is, because you have to have that sly, you know, sleek used car salesman stuff with the kind of hero, you know, the, the lovable hero. Yeah. It's a tough thing to pull off. I think it's like a Jimmy Stewart role that could make, I know, that we say this every uh, day. Yeah, We're I mean, like the Jimmy Stewart Love love Affair podcast. Yeah, that's but, not right. Jimmy Stewart I can know. do anything. It's like saying, okay, Tom Hanks <laughs> could do that. But you know what I mean? It, it's, you ha- it's very tough. So with that being said, I think he did a, decent job. Mm. I just don't think he had that extra lovableness to him that that maybe would draw me in and maybe right. feel bad for certain moments. Would, would you buy the character if Jimmy Stewart was playing it? Would he be able to pull it off or would they have to rewrite the script? He might not be smarmy enough. I don't know. Might, he, 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 right. So I don't know. I think this is a tough one because I think my issue is sometimes with Fred McMurray specifically is that he didn't... Um, I don't know. His face was a little bit wooden, maybe I should say. Mm-hmm. So in some, and that's the thing. He's trying to be dry. And yeah, it was that Joe Friday show. Totally. But it just when there was moments when he needed to kind of be lovable, you know, mm. it was, it was really not. I just didn't buy it. I didn't, mm. I didn't see his face kind of change to like, oh, I'm in love with this woman. And that that whole love story we'll get to in a second. Yeah, but, that right. was the biggest issue I thought. Yeah, you're. Let's just okay. Let's just talk about that. <laughs> what, Sean? What did you think of uh, Barbara Stanwyck? We never seen a Barbara Stanwyck film before this. Yeah, I mean, she was uh, fine in the role. I just think the relationship was um, either rushed or the chemistry wasn't working or something about it. Like it just feels like, like we said, the music kind of did most of the relationship work, and it just we're throwing these people in here and just assuming that like. Okay, yeah, he's now obsessed with her. Oh, well, you know, okay, now she wants him. Oh, wait, no. Now he wants her. No, wait, no. So, you know, it's just kind of this weird, like, it's more for the story beats than it is for the characters. Yeah, totally. But it, it's played like a love story. Yeah. So you need that. You need that element. I think. Graham, do you buy the love story? I mean, it's no. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't do a great <laughs> job on the love story. It's more like a lust story, yeah. maybe. Okay. Right? Okay. Like he sees her bracelet, you know, anklet or whatever, and and he's they're they're very. There's a lot of sexual tension right off the bat. She comes over to his place, and then they like immediately kiss and then fade to black. Mm. So in that fade to black, I think is the love story, right? Well, that's like, that's we're supposed to imagine what happened there that made their passion so strong and their love Mm. so great that it would withstand the rest of the movie. So uh, Mm. for sure, I think that that's undercut and not as well-developed as other love stories. I don't think this, yeah, I mean, they could have done a a better job of that. It's sort of, it's sort of what, like what's the off-screen stuff that we sort of have to envision happened in order to just sort of suspend disbelief basically yeah it's a big leap to make yeah 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 yeah. speaking of off-screen stuff i I think sean you might be on to something that there was something going on between those two i think they did not like each other on set Mm. it seemed like there was like a fight between it didn't they didn't feel like they wanted to be in the same room together a few times i don't know i just didn't get it i didn't buy it at all um 
and I, th- I think she's not bad though, uh, Barbara Stanwyck. Like, I, I think mm-hmm. she had some great monologues. She had some great lines. Yeah. Uh, the, the, her moment in the office with Ed Norton is, is great. Oh yeah, I forgot you know, that when was she, great. She like stands up for herself. Like she's, you can see in her acting that she is playing both of those roles. She is acknowledging as a person that yes, she is lying her ass off, but she's also kind of putting on that secondary face of like, you know, having to lie to these people in front of her. And you could kind of see all those layers working and you could see kind of a lot going on there. Unfortunately, I don't think the rest of the movie really gave her that much to work with. Yeah. She had the role of like empowerment, right? That's what we could sort of hang that character on is that she was the puppet master who was masterminding everyone around her and using all of her wiles to to kind of trick the guys. Um, And so in that there's something, but yeah, it wasn't such a a character that she could really spread her wings and do a lot of. I feel like Actually if, things. if you remade it, you'd like do it from her perspective and there mm. would be like a lot of, you know, puppet mastering mm. of all of her little love interests that she had doing all these different little murders for her. Right. That's like misery. Yeah. Kind I of. mean, but I think that, uh, it, no, it's not exactly, but I, that, that character to be like yeah, almost yeah. the main focus is kind of weird, but cause she is just a murderer. Let's be honest. Yeah. You know, she no, murdered, she's a sociopath, right? Like, yeah. yeah. She's really bad. She, like she killed the wife. <laughs> yeah. She killed the, did she kill the wife though? I kind of got the oh, impression yeah. that she, like, she let someone else kill the wife. Uh, uh, she, she was the, the nurse who yeah, could yeah. have been po- putting the poison yeah, in yeah, yeah, this yeah, food yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and then she was going to like frame the daughter basically. I mean, she was just like an awful, awful sociopath. No yeah, she was it. using also the other guy, the the Italian kid, and then yeah, right. the, yeah. not very good character. And all for fifty thousand dollars. I know fifty. How much would that be, Graham, in today's money? I think it was like. Uh, well, her house was thirty thousand, so. <laughs> so yeah, it's a nicer yeah yeah an upgrade, Up, or at least probably enough to live off of. The house is paid off, and she can live comfortably for the rest of her life. It's not a bad deal. What was it? Seven fifty. Seven hundred fifty thousand. Something that's like fifteen times was inflation or something. Okay, like that. sounds about right. Yeah. So if the double indemnity would have been one point five, and if they were together, which she was like insinuating they would be, yeah, yeah. that would be a nice little. Yeah. You know, they could escape to Mexico and live a nice life or something. Totally. Like nice little nest egg. Yeah. Good for her. <laughs> you know, girl power. Girl, saying, yeah, girl know, power. I'm really proud of it. Her, yeah. You know. Okay. Um, since we're talking about the characters, uh, let's just go right into cast it today. I think why not? No. Because you know we're talking about the actors, characters. Uh, Sean, do you got a? Uh, I don't know. Who would you cast for uh, any of these guys? <laughs> oh, why the sad trombone? Um, cause I'm about to say something that's gonna make you sad. Oh. Um, I the first name I wrote down for our our dear hero was Harvey Keitel. Um, I do think he's a little bit old at this point, but like, you know, Reservoir Dogs, Harvey Keitel kind of got that like fast talking, can be smarmy, can be still kind of okay. pull off that mm. hero thing. Yeah. Um, but then when I really thought about it, Vin Diesel. <laughs> that does make me sad. You're right. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> that, that jump off the back of the train would have been way cooler. Yeah, that's true. You're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. It would have been a flip and a uh, tuck and a roll. And, but it would be yeah. very hard to disguise himself as a 51-year-old like oil tycoon, you know? Uh, yeah. Do I just look at the back of Vin Diesel? I'm pretty sure you know it's Vin Diesel. <laughs> Those but, muscles ripple through anything. Yeah. He's got like arm butter on. You recognize that arm butter anywhere. Uh, uh, do you have a hero, Graham? 
a hero. Uh, well, who, our, our our main uh, cast. Yeah. Well, I, I thought of the the salesman mm. with a little bit of like you know this inner turmoil, perhaps. So I was like Bradley Cooper or something mm. like that. Okay. Okay. Um, you could see that happening, and then I was for the for the woman, I was like. If Naomi Watts was a little younger, I was kind of seeing her okay. being able to like pull the strings in this kind of way and be sort of play the vulnerable card, but then in, in you know have the knife at the back at the same time. Mm. Um, so I mean, I, I have to say you have to give this to '90s era Sharon Stone, right? <laughs> I thought that movie was Basic already made. So You're right. Yeah, yeah, I right. feel like she's made the three of these already, right? right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I would say today though, I, I like Jennifer Lawrence. I think she could yeah. do that kind of creepy, got Maybe. a little. You know, maybe I killed a guy back in the day. <laughs> right. You never know. And then she could retain with Bradley Cooper from oh, Silver Linings right. Playbook. And they already oh, got the geez. chemistry. And American Hustle. <laughs> this is perfect. We yeah. made this movie. Yeah. Paul yeah. Thomas Anderson, you listening? Yeah, I guess we're and making it. David O. Russell, let's go. <laughs> yeah, that'd be. No, no. I don't want to work with him. Wow. <laughs> He'll throw something at me. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you would find a way to piss him off, I'm, I'm sure. I'll, I'll find a way. <laughs> I can find a way. But you would be you would have the lapel mic on him when he went on his crazy uh, rant. That's true. And then you would it's leak it up. online. Maybe you were there. And maybe that was yeah. I got back up on a lot of you motherfuckers. <laughs> exactly. Don't you piss me off. I got exactly. I got hard drives full of the shit that you say. Be careful. Okay. Um so yeah, Sean, are you ready to uh play a little game here? Uh oh. Uh oh. Oh, play the music. Uh -oh. oh my god, That's okay. Are you ready, we're ready. to play? Wondrously fabulous game to ever thrust forth from the bowels of the internet. The only game on the web where I look up the numbers and you give the name and the log line and then you gotta guess the house. Oh my god, it's fucking Wow, look at that I'm crap. Show. I tried, man. I, I'm I impressed. Fuck you well, all. No, um, I am going to... Uh, I'm sorry, today on the show we are going to be doing movies about insurance agents hmm. oh wow so so I will give it was you more the, than I thought <laughs> <laughs> I will give you the title of said movie and the logline and then it is up to you to guess the domestic gross product of that movie alright uh, so let me bring up my list here unfortunately we did already do the most classic noteworthy insurance agent in the world which is of course Needle Nose Ned in Groundhog's Day so uh, unfortunately okay. Groundhog's Day will uh, not be on this list huh. um, but we do Ned have Ryerson. some other there was a uh, number of lists I found of movies about insurance agents so apparently these guys are you know pretty bored at work um, <laughs> but first up on the, sh on the list here on the Air, Unaware, in 1998, directed by Peter Weir, we have The Truman Show. Oh, yeah. Cram, hmm. okay. so write yours down so we don't... Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, like it matters. Because you don't trust him? Yeah. <laughs> I'm writing down how much that movie made. Uh, yeah, yeah domestic gross. Domestic. Uh, so we have Jim Carrey. Not adjusted for inflation. Um, it's <laughs> box office mojo, so I think it is adjusted. Oh, it is? I think so. I don't know that it matters for 20 years or 10 years, but... Yeah. As Tim likes to mention, we were in a bubble, you know? <laughs> Got to mention the, the economic conditions of the time. Yep. All right, I'm ready. Uh, all right. So, Joey, in 98, what did Truman Show make? I'm going to say $88 million. $88 million. Hmm. Graham? Although it's a Jim Carrey movie, I don't think it was a very successful one. So I'm going to go with $40 million. $40 million. Mm. Well, this, I did not find a production budget for this one, but you gentlemen have way too little faith in it. It came in at $125 oh. million. Dollars. Wow. Nice well, was pretty big. You, pretty you won that one. Closer. Yes, yeah. I did. So I guess Jim Carrey pulled it off in the end. Uh, yeah, at least. Yeah. 
I, well, I don't know. That was probably a pretty expensive movie. Um, if they're not listing the budget and mm. yeah, I assume that was probably like a hundred million dollar movie because he was a $20 million yep. actor at the time. So. Yeah. Ed Harris too. 90s yeah. Ed Harris. No, there was a lot of people in that. Laura Linney. Yeah. Laura Linney yeah. Next up gentlemen, today is the first day of the rest of his weekend in 2011 directed by Miguel Estella. So uh, Cedar Rapids, 2011 Cedar Rapids. I didn't see this. No, nope. either. Well, uh, let's see here. Ed Helms. Uh, yes, Ed, there we go. Ed Helms, John C. Riley, mm -hmm. Anne Hache, uh, Stephen Root, Kirkland Smith, um, Rob Cordry. Yeah, a bunch of other people. Mike Birbiglio. Uh, so in uh, 2011, what did Cedar Rapids make, Graham? Well, the fact that neither of us have seen it yeah. tells me it's got to be a low number. I'm going for $10 million. $10 million, wow. Joey. I said 12 12 You guys had way too much faith in this movie. <laughs> it came in at $6 million. Okay. Well, that's, that's it might have still brother. made money. Um, it's true. It's you know? possible. I it doubt it. It made for a couple mil. That's true. Yeah, there's not much to it. It's like, I have seen it. It's uh, basically an insurance convention in like Iowa or something. So it's just like all shot in some little hotel. Um, but next up we have no gut, no glory in 2004 directed by Brad Bird. We have the Incredibles. Whoa. Okay. Yep. The, okay. the father is an insurance agent in that That's movie. That's true. All right. Hmm. So for, sorry, 2004, the Incredibles. Uh, 2004. We don't really have. Uh, oh, Craig T. Nelson is the voice. Uh, Holly Hunter, Sam Jackson, Samuel Jackson Jason yeah. Lee. Um, uh, yeah, no one else. Joey, I said 140. 140 million dollars. <laughs> and grab, I, no I went way, way, way bigger. I went 650 million. Whoa, because this is a Pixar movie. True, mm -hmm. you might be right. I don't know. Uh, a little too high there. This one came in at two hundred and sixty-one million dollars. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You were right to go high, but a little, yeah. little too, a little too eager there. Yeah. All right. Let, next up, we have some some memories are best forgotten. In two thousand, Christopher Nolan directed Memento. Mm. Apparently, he is a fired insurance agent or a failed insurance agent because he can't remember shit no more. Realize hmm. he was an insurance agent. Yeah, I think it's like one of those things that they mention at he's the beginning. He's got to be the worst insurance agent. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's why he can't do it no more because, you know, he's got to. No, he's really get, the worst yeah. at any job, honestly. Uh, I mean, I think you could do a factory work and not have to, like, remember shit. Like, you just have a picture of the button you got to hit in front of you. And and he's got to remember it every time. He's got to look at the picture every five. <laughs> I mean, that's why the <laughs> pictures are there. He's got a tattoo of it on his <laughs> All right, I got to think of it. So, in 2000, what did Memento make? Joey. I'm going to say 18. $18 million, Graham. I went uh, very, very close to that, actually, because I, I, I know they couldn't get distribution. Mm. And Soderbergh was like, if this movie can't get distribution, I don't want to be a filmmaker. And it <laughs> took him 20 years to finally call it quits. But I, I went $15 million. 15 Yeah. All right, on. Uh, this one came in at $25 million. Mm. Okay. So it just edges you out there. All right. Last up on the list. For the most cautious man on earth, life is about to get interesting. In 2004, in, in 2004, <laughs> 2004. <laughs> I was pretty poor mm. in 2004, uh, directed by John Hamburg, we have Along Came Polly. Ah, uh, yeah. This okay. is uh, uh, 
Oh, geez. Ben Stiller, Jennifer Aniston, yeah. uh, Deborah Messing, Alec Baldwin, Hank Azaria. Jesus. Who is no. it? They're all in this piece of shit? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. This was 2004's Along Came Polly. Graham. I think because it was in the Ben Stiller era, I'm giving it 70 mil. 70 wow, million. Wow. We're really simpatico on a lot of these. And I did mm. see that movie. So. I don't know. I just remember, is this the one where Ben Stiller's like puts his face in like a sweaty guy's- Yeah, Philip like, Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's his <laughs> neighbor buddy, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that's all I remember. Yeah. Uh, 76 mil is what oh. I said. 76. Just edging it out again, Joey takes it. It came <laughs> in at eight, $88 million. 88. Okay. Oh, wow. So. I should have guessed that first. Gentlemen, this has been the most wondrously fabulous game on the internet. Yes, the gross. Thank you for playing. Well, thank you, Sean. Yeah, you're welcome. That was fun. I won. Yeah. Sweet. Graham, better looks next time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gotta work on those grosses. Yeah. You were actually very close, though. I just edged you out in every one. Well, you know, I want to recount. <laughs> Luckily, we have no evidence that you won, right? I am bad at math, so who knows? <laughs> right. You're going to talk to Ukraine, uh-huh. try to get them to take up the dirt <laughs> exactly. on me. Exactly. Fuck that. The Ukraine? No, it's not. <laughs> Okay, uh, so now we come to everyone's favorite and maybe least favorite segment, the sound. Yay. Yay. Is there a button for this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just people <laughs> turning their podcast off. Um, so uh, I, I thought the sound was pretty damn impressive overall. Um, the music has, there's a lot to it here because it's made by a guy named Miklos Rocha. Uh, and this dude, it was like his first big movie. Like he was a kind of a, a, a composer in general, but this was his first big movie. And uh, Wilder kind of backed him, even, even when the music supervisor heard the music and was like, fuck this, we have to replace him. Mm. At first they heard it, they were like, this is too over the top. He called it Carnegie Hall style music. <laughs> Um, I don't know, Graham, did you kind of get that feeling? Did you think it was over the top or did you think it was kind of struck the right pitch, if you will? I mean, for the for the heightened sense of dialogue and the heightened style, I, f- I feel like you need heightened music, Yeah. right? So I feel like it, it hit that kind of, that sort of movie world. Yes. You know, genre world. It's yeah. not like real world. So yeah, I thought it was great. It definitely did fit. And I, I can see why Billy Wilder, chose that because this is not your this is out this is out there because it is it's so much there's Bernard Herman aspects to it like mm. psycho aspects to it you know we hear strings really high pitched when we're supposed to feel, feel some suspense obviously it's not like stabbing someone but um, I thought it was pretty damn impressive uh, the only thing I had was it was just too loud at some moments it was just mixed a little bit loud for the dialogue and I couldn't really make out the beginning there um, but it really settled in and I really loved actually some of the moments where there was a lack of music mm. um, which was pretty amazing um then there was diegetic music in that last goodbye scene that was really interesting why they picked that one moment the radio down the street yeah mm-hmm. that where she's really trying where she actually did feel love supposedly for mm-hmm. five seconds but it was that, all a trick yeah it was all a trick she didn't feel love she's a sociopath she doesn't know what love is <laughs> <laughs> joey's got issues <laughs> Um, I, I thought it was great. There was a lot of um, what they called like unfinished phrases, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of dissonance, and which is really cool is that it was very much based on, um, I believe, I think it's Schubert's, let me make sure I got this right. Uh, it's a specific, yeah, Franz Schubert's Unfinished Symphony. And it's the same symphony we heard when they were sitting uh, behind the Hollywood, or I'm sorry, in front of the Hollywood Bowl. Mm. So we got a little, you know, taste of that. It was almost like, hey, we're alluding to the fact that we stole a little of this style of music. You're talking but, about the Jurassic Park shot? Yeah, the Jurassic Park shot. Uh-huh. 
Do you say that because of the foliage or? I mean, just like the way it's framed, it's like that really classic s- shot where they're, uh, they're all at Jurassic Park, like the um, uh, Dr. Graham and the two kids. Mm-hmm. And then like the helicopters are in the background and like all the dinosaurs are kind of like in the background okay. and you kind of have like the, you, you have the tension of the characters, but you have like everything else in that shot as well. I don't know, just kind of like an all-encompassing sort of, you know, like moments. <laughs> uh, well, Sean, were there any specific sound moments that jumped out at you while you're talking about moments? Um, you know, honestly, it was mostly just reinforcing. Like the thing that jumped out at me most was just the the pushing of the love story through the music. So, like, I definitely noticed that like there wasn't the charisma there, but I knew the filmmakers were telling me I should feel that there was a love story. Yeah. So to me, that was like the most attention grabbing part of the sound was, you know, just kind of un- un- like almost forcing emotion onto the audience. This is something I think about all the time because when I see students doing this for, because th- there's a lot of students doing shitty acting, obviously, or, you know, <laughs> casting <laughs> shitty actors rather. And they think, oh, I'm going to put really good music in the background. It's going to make it better. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think it draws attention to it. I think it makes it almost worse in some ways. You can't save bad acting with, with overdramatic music. Right. Um, and I think that was clear in some of these moments. Um, and I just thought in, in some ways it didn't strike the right tone. And there was a few of these. There was maybe two or three of these moments where it was very much violins playing romantic music and they're like planning a murder. And I'm like, yeah. okay, they're mm-hmm. planning a murder. I mean, I know they're in love, but- <laughs> That's like know. some Joker shit there. <laughs> yeah, it just kind of struck me as wrong for moments. Yeah. But I, I, that's why I can kind of see what that music supervisor was talking about. He was kind of like, this is not striking the right tone. Yeah. Mm. But- I agree also it's over the top and that there's a reason for that. I think you kind of said that already, Graham, and that it, it works for these, these scenes, I think. Yeah. Um, it, it, oh, it, interesting though, that you're saying that you're talking about the silent moments. My favorite sound moment was the silent moment at the end when he walks in the door and for the first time there's not, he slams the door and it's like just them. And you know, this is like the big climactic moment and there's no sound. Mm. That was that was pretty good. It's like sometimes if it you was. have wall to wall sound and you take the sound away, yep, that's totally. the more dramatic moment. Totally, right? absolutely. Yeah. I think there was a couple good ones. Um, Edward G. Robinson had a lot of them when mm. he kind of you know laid down. Oh, I think it might be murder. Okay. And there was a nice dramatic pause. That was really nice. It just let and it didn't even. It wasn't over the top. It let it play. It just kind of let the room be silent. Like oh, that's weird. It, the awkwardness kind of just you know sizzled in the room, if you will. Mm. Um, Anything, I love the background in the train scene. There was some good stuff there. Uh, you know, just very subtle train movements, like, and the, the volume would go down as he was walking away. I know yeah. it's 1944, but so I'm giving him a lot of credit, but I think it's, it's, it's a good, simple way to make it, you know, you add a lot to the scene. Um, and I thought that was kind of cool. You know, it added to the, the tension of the scene, just these high pitch whining of the tr- of the rail mm. that, you know, even if it's subconscious, these high pitch whines are going to make you on, on the edge of your seat. I think that the sound of a train in a movie is just always like, you know, the sound of plot moving forward. <laughs> like yeah. it is just that like constant momentum that like even if nothing is happening, just that momentum of that sound of the train is like right. moving things forward. I think that's a great point. The train sound itself is layered. We yeah. have the clack 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 clack, you know, which is like the driving momentum, and then you do have the whining pitching when you roll, you know, coming into the station, yeah. warning you, oh my god, something's coming. And it's so similar to me. I talked about this last time. We were talking about the evolutionary reasons why they play high pitch stuff and low pitch stuff, and it's because one, you're afraid of a predator. 
right? Mm. Something's going to get big. It's a big, bassy predator. But then you also have these high-pitched stuff, which is like screaming or some sort of whine or some sort of roar from a predator, you know? So that is, it's mm. like two warning sounds combined. One thing I didn't mention last time we talked about that is uh, a lot of the high pitches actually, they uh, apparently they've been finding out that mammals are listening to birds. So birds are like the early warning signs. Ah. So they hear those high pitches and now they're on alert. And then they're like listening for those lows of the actual predators coming through. A literal canary in a coal mine. Yeah. Sorry for well, making that joke. I don't know if it's a coal mine, but yeah. you know, well, a role. bear's den. Sure. Um, okay. So I, I just want to say one more thing before I move on from the music. I really loved the way that he used climax uh, and, and strings. Sometimes you can tell certain composers what instrument they started on. Mm -hmm. I think this guy started as a violin player. Uh, <laughs> he's obsessed with the strings. Uh, you know, that's, that's not a bad thing. Some, you know, you can hear some cello players become mm -hmm. composers and they're, play cello all the time. I five became a composer. There'd be a lot of electric guitar, but I just think it's, it's fascinating the way he uses strings to go up and down, up and down and, uh, and, and create the, the moments. What's what's I, to me, it's just like an example I always use is when you're mixing audio for a band, every single member wants to hear yeah. their instrument mm -hmm. louder. Totally. The drums aren't loud enough. The guitar is not loud enough because they're all just so used to standing next to that instrument mm -hmm. and hearing that. So yeah, everyone needs their own mix. The another great moment there was the beginning and you Graham you mentioned that just the action immediately and that the music was perfect for that because I was not expecting that I was expecting a slow moving blocking scene that was exp expository right. and we would see okay here's the character and here we're gonna set up the you know the, here's the and it wasn't that it was yeah. bam we're into it and the music was like yeah you guys gotta recognize this <laughs> I don't recognize. know why I said recognize <laughs> you gotta you got to recognize I don't know what's wrong with me today but, but even the opening credit right where the guy's just in silhouette yeah. walking on his crutches and then you're hearing the, the yeah. music coming even in like the sort of prologue type thing. That yeah. was a really cool way to do the credits too. Yeah. Like uh, most of the time when they're doing these credits, it's just kind of against black or whatever, but like, at least that's like a visually interesting thing that also kind of foreshadows the entire like climax of the movie yeah. and, you know, but doesn't really give anything away. So right. when you start to see those pieces come together, it, it yeah, it just kind of like uh, brings back that sort of nice warm feeling that the beginning had. I don't know. <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> oh, he's going right. to die. Great. Right. <laughs> Yeah, at least you you know you remembered it. Yeah, yeah. Um, something I thought was really cool was the sound of the car not starting. Mm. You know, the flooding of the engine. I wasn't sure how realistic it was. Obviously, I've never started a car from the forties. It I didn't like it. I wanted it to be more. I know that sounds really lame. I'm like, I want more car sound. Yeah. But I did. I want more. I wanted more of that. <laughs> you know, oh, I'm not starting now for you. I wanted more of that, you know, classic. I was, I guess, that's more of a cartoony Looney yeah. Tunes sound. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I wanted something a little more over the top for that little moment. Hmm. I just thought it was weird that that moment was like a moment of weird tension, but he didn't do anything to fix it. He just he kind of like, like slammed the dashboard, leaned over yeah, her, and it was, it was like, like, "Let me try." Exactly. It <laughs> yeah. was like just because he did it. Like there was the no man's like, touch. Sean. Yeah, there was no like Fonzie moment where he like bangs on the right thing or like you know adjusts the key or jiggles something or yeah. goes under the hood and proves that he's a man. He just no, I'm a man. I can do Let these things. Try, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It just I don't know if that's the the woke culture in me or if that is uh, you know an an actual like weird storytelling thing <laughs> like. I, I think a, you're right. It, it was a missed opportunity to show his prowess or something. I, yeah, yeah, it just felt like that. It felt like there was tension there for a character moment that just didn't happen. Yeah. Like there, you know, there was a lot of buildup and then like that m scene was just over because he did it. Like, yeah. yeah. 
to to finalize the sound stuff, the dialogue. Okay, it's fucking great. Really good sound of the dialogue. Um, a lot of production sound, not a lot of ADR, which is surprising. There's a lot of shots, especially couple I, moments, but yeah, couple moments for sure. And there's going to be some, but yeah. I think that even in the beginning when we're introduced to Barbara Stanwyck, we get some nice natural reverb from her across yeah. the fucking balcony when she addresses. I'm like, they could have easily done ADR there, but they really made an effort to get the production sound, and and that was kind of cool. I like they're they're trying to do that. You know, 1944, it's fucking tough to get a boom microphone up yeah. there. So, but it definitely gave a sense of the space and the distance. Totally. And like her power above him and everything. Right. Like, good yeah. point. Good point. Yeah. And you're right. It might have been cheesy if they added some yeah. fake reverb, and, you know, in post. If, so it I, found, if it sounded like she was ASMRing in our ear. Right. Oh, God. And yeah, <laughs> I, I want to talk about that recording thing forever. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll move on, though. But that was cool as fuck. The, the, the wax <laughs> the recorder. Wax yeah, dude. We should have a little corner in our podcast where we talk about the gadgets from the past. <laughs> That's kind of what we we're obsessed about, really. Um, okay, so let's let's move on from that. Let's talk about how this thing uh, looked, Sean. Mm. So, uh, I mean, obviously, classic noir. Did yeah, it have, a, have a certain look, Sean. It was it was black and white. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's, yeah. It was that. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, like we said before, though, lots of shadow play. Um, they were like, oh, like obviously it starts with that big opening uh, silhouette scene or shot of the crutches w- walking forward. But there were a lot of like good entrances into doorways that were just preceded by the shadow of the character yeah. and just kind of like announcing themselves with these grand right. entrances, which worked really well because it was a lot of wider shots. Um, you know, it almost felt like it was shot more like a comedy than a noir. Like I'm used to the noirs being just so much tighter and grittier and like, you know, just kind of in your face. But even the close-ups on this, like it's a four by three aspect ratio, but they're still like, you know, two T's. I mean, it's like, it's it's a loose close on most of these things. Two T's? <sighs> Come on, not all of us know this stuff. <laughs> um, so it depends on who you ask and how old they actually are. Um, most people assume that two T's means the two tits, so that your frame is actually framed from the top of the head to the bottom of the tits. But that's actually not true. There is uh, one T, two T's, and three T's. One T, I believe, is chin. The second T would be like chest, and then the third T is like bottom of the belly or mid-belly section. So there was like a specific sort of shot structure that that came from, but the only saying that anyone remembers from it is the two T's. It is memorable. Yeah, yeah. But basically, that's a long way to say that these were wider close-ups. The entire movie played wider, which really allowed them to, like, sculpt these shots. The, The composition of all of them were just you know, really interesting to watch. There's, you know, even when we just have two people sitting like that, the final scene where he is curled up and dying and his, what's his buddy's name? The, um, uh, whatever his keys. He, yeah. Keys comes over and start like, you know, uh, you know, kind of trying to console him. They don't take up a lot of the frame, but there's a lot of lines and architecture and depth to everything around them. Mm -hmm. And like that so easily could have just been shot around a flat corner and just, you know, a much easier thing to light and easier thing to shoot. But they took the time to actually frame those things and put those elements where they needed to be and put the camera where it needs to be to actually, you know, feel those moments in that sort of space. So it, like I said, there's only, 
I always say that the wide is the hardest shot to, to really make. You know, when you're dealing with a wide, you have all these elements. You got to bring pretty much everything together. Anyone can make a tight shot look good. But like composing a shot in the wides is really, you know, where you make your money. And this was, like I said, all wides. And it's hard to compete with that. Mm-hmm. Again, beyond that, the lighting... Lots of shadows. The one thing that was really bugging me was the eye lights. Um, mm. Everyone had a really strong eye light. Like the sh- there was a lot of shadows and a lot of texture to the lighting, but there was like this oval around everyone's face that was just like brightening them up that like they didn't want to seem too evil or something. I'm not really sure what the thinking is there, but it definitely felt kind of, it felt out of place certainly, but it was a little bit distracting. Graham, do you agree? Do you, do you think uh, do you think that the lighting and the look and all this stuff was was supported with the story, or do you, or do you think it was? Yeah, I think it. Uh, I, we sort of talked about it before. It's like I, I think to, to turn Los Angeles, which was sunny and bright and sort of optimistic, and you know, and yeah. turning it into a grisly place where people are always sort of not sort of semi concealed by what Venetian blind, <laughs> yeah, right, and and just um, mm-hmm. and just sort of feeling like there's prison bars over everything from these okay. blinds, mm-hmm. and um, uh, clearly they put a lot of like dust in the air because yeah. they, they really had lines of light which I thought were, were great um, and then the, the shadows you're always seeing the the sort of fedora coming mm. in from the back and it's like this ominous shadow is approaching <laughs> these scenes right. um, the eye light uh, I noticed it more on her because oh, yeah, I think sure. they were going for the yep. glam yeah, yeah. The, like twinkle in the eye mm-hmm. to, and I thought that was like oh that's just another one of her wiles to be able to get mm. this guy and I and I I know there was some oh, shots like she was like vampire glamouring him or something <laughs> yeah okay. like, like, woo, I can get that. With, like yeah. hypnotic yeah. eyes, and then because there was I, some shots I remember where she had the eye light, but he didn't. Yeah, and it was like, oh, he's the patsy here. Oh, okay. You know, and, and she's yeah. like the bright one who's okay. like, that's cool. I got that a lot more in Sunset Boulevard. I felt like that was kind of like that. You know, there was a huge heavy eye light in that as well, and it was like all about her kind of you know puppet mastering and seducing him. But yeah, now that you say that, that does make a lot of sense for a lot of those shots. Yeah, and the other thing I liked about the the look of it was um, some of the framing they did like this foreground background thing where yep. like Fred McMurray would be in the foreground mm-hmm. and Keys would be in the background kind of like like yeah. she, he was always talking about the little guy in his belly or whatever yeah. and it's like oh Keys was the little guy in his belly who's yeah. like oh he because he's small in the frame because he's behind yeah. but it was it, we're seeing you're talking about the door shot when yeah. they're in the hallway in the elevator that, yeah that's one of, and there was another one in the office oh, also yeah, yeah. yeah and it's, it's so we're seeing a, in a in a close up Fred McMurray sweating buckets because mm. he knows that he's going to get caught and in the background right. we see the, the characters like piecing it all together <laughs> so I thought some of those shots were really neat the, the way they were done I loved the shot uh, when the, in the pretty much the finale scene or the goodbye scene when when he goes back and sees uh, Barbara Stanwyck when he's a, behind her in the chair and you kind of think he's going to choke her he kind of puts his hands like on her shoulder mm-hmm. and you're like oh this is exactly how he choked out and killed the, the husband I was, right, right, right. so I was kind of like oh that's cool blocking it kind of gives me that tension without me kind of you know saying anything or doing anything. just maybe he's going to choke her in that moment right, right, I like right. that too I thought it was kind of cool apparently yeah. when he's not selling insurance he trains MMA yeah. That's right. This dude is an assassin. <laughs> he's an, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> the best yeah. uh, I thought in the beginning there was another moment I noticed with shadows. There was like two shadows. There was a lot of double shadows. And mm. again, maybe it's the two on the nose with the double stuff. But you know, <laughs> when she's when she's walking, you know, down the hallway, there's a moment where there's two shadows with her. I'm like, oh, maybe she's got two sides to her. She's double crossing someone, or I don't. Mm. I kind of bought that. So I think that even my, again, I always say this: my philistine eyes can probably you know buy a little of what's the lighting and what the you know is trying to tell the audience maybe subconsciously. Mm-hmm. So I think even the layman can kind of get something from 
the, the, the look of it, the style of it. Oh. Honestly, do, do, you think, me, do you agree? Well, to me, just saying that seems a little bit like the, uh, that sort of like Joycean concept we used to talk about where like, you know, if you look hard enough, you can just kind of keep Maybe. finding layers and sure. depth into everything. Like when I hear double shadow, I just kind of assume, you know, that's more of Mistake. a lighting issue than, <laughs> yeah. than anything. I could certainly see that, but I, um, I didn't get that when I was watching it. Wow. But again, you know, art is fairly subjective and I guess it means to you what it means but yeah i think you know you can get a little up your own ass about you sure. know trying to ascribe meaning to damn near everything that you see um absolutely i mean that's pink floyd dark side of the moon totally. you know and wizard of oz all that stuff you know the you're, you're, yeah you're going to want to see connections <laughs> and even if it's probably there or not yeah. Right. I'm sure it was all pro a shot. It felt like it was all shot on stages too, right? Yeah. So it was like, so they, you would think they would have control yeah. over everything that they're doing. Um, but, you know, maybe they're just like, we got to go. And like they mm. threw a light on here. Who knows what? But yeah. um, even the exteriors, I feel like they lit. Like even the day exteriors, I feel like they were lighting with this big blasting light coming in from one of the sides or something. Yeah. I don't know. So they clearly had, a, I think, a strategy and maybe they were just like, didn't have time or something. And, who knows? Yeah, I, I mean, guess we'll it, never know. No, yeah. yeah. I mean, Joey, you could be totally right. I, <laughs> no, I probably have not. But I, I think in that sense is it did play into the comedic, you know, aspect of it, even though it's, I don't know if it's a comedy, it's not really, but it does have, you know, well-lit scenes, which are, I mean, in, in addition to the darkness and the smokiness and the inside. So it does give you these moments of, oh, it, maybe they are just going to end up, you know, going to Mexico together and ending up as a nice love story. And there is some musical elements that kind of lean into that too. So mm -hmm. I think it's possible to, to believe in a happy ending based on some of it. I mm -hmm. mean, I don't really think so because you know the show you the wraparound but right. it's I mean, possible to buy it maybe. I don't maybe. Know. Well, to me visually, it, it felt a lot more like a comedy. I, I wouldn't have ascribed noir to this until you told me. Like, even now, I'd say maybe proto-noir, where, like, the, you know, there's a lot of elements that are created, but, like, the look overall, I still, it, it just doesn't feel dark enough and contrasty enough to really call it noir. Mm -hmm. it, I mean, like, all of the lighting and stuff, it felt more like a, a dark comedy of the time than anything. Uh, I, the story doesn't play as much as a dark comedy. Right. It's more the, the, like, you know, witty banter that does, but, yeah. Right. But for sure, Billy Wilder, that's where he called home. That's yeah, what he's yeah. known for, right? So it's interesting that, because I always feel like the other thing I love about the Billy Wilder stuff is that I think a little bit of whimsy can go mm. a long way. Yeah. And it, you can you can forgive it its flaws because you're like, oh, but it's so fun. They're just having fun. And it's like, yeah. don't take it so seriously. So that he, so I think that you're right that they're, that, that, I mean, for sure, the 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 Billy Wilder and comedy go hand in hand, and that's his secret weapon. Mm -hmm. And so the, it's interesting that he may have come at it from um, a point of view of someone who did more comedies before this, and then this was like he wanted to do a darker, sardonic yeah. comedy, and or, you know. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. I like movies where you can tell it's a certain person's style, but it's not overwhelming. I think Tarantino kind of goes over the top with this kind of stuff. But I like I like the idea that I could see this and be like, this is Billy Wilder, and, and that, that's cool that I can kind of recognize that that style in this. It is really, you know, it, it just is him. All every yeah. all of the the snappy dialogue, yeah. you know, the cutesy, like you said, whimsy. I, I like that too because I didn't quite hate the guy, even though I, right. I've been saying all the all along he's unlikable. Mm. But he does have this kind of cutesy thing to him. It's got this campy element to him where I can't quite just hate him. He's like, ah, oh, chip off the old block doing his murder again. You know, <laughs> right, a little right, rascal. Yeah. You know? Right, and right, that, right. that little bit of whimsy does sell it, I think. Uh, so I really, yeah, I, I dug that little 
that twist on it made it more likable. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, so let's uh, let's move on to another game. Oh, gentlemen, we're gonna play the Oscar game. Yay! Play your okay. It's called Guess the Oscar Picks. For now, really need a new song. <laughs> okay. Uh, so we're You're gonna. Free to do one. Yeah, I'm just lazy. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna guess the Oscar picks from. Yes, Sean. From 1944. Okay, let's go Ooh. right into it. Best Actor. We got Cary Grant, None But the Lonely Heart, Bing Crosby, Going My Way, Charles Boyer, Gaslight, Barry Fitzgerald, Going My Way. Oh, two of them. Alexander Knox for Wilson. Oh, as Woodrow Wilson. I didn't even know there was a movie about that. Hmm. What do you guys think? What was the first one? Uh, Cary Grant. Yeah. And what was the second one from the same movie? <laughs> <laughs> there was uh, Barry Fitzgerald for Going My Way and Bing Crosby for Going My Way. Hmm. I'm going Cary Grant. Graham. Bing Crosby, I guess. Bing Crosby's <laughs> correct. Oh. Wow. <laughs> well done, you need a uh, winner sound. Yeah. Just, I'll just do random. What's but it? that's a good call, though. If there's two <laughs> nominated from the same movie, it's generally going to be one of them. Mm. They're not going to fuck over both. You know. All right. They might split the vote. They could. That's true. <laughs> Best actress. We got Betty Davis for Miss, Mr. Skeffington. <laughs> Greer Garson for Mrs. Parkington. Same fucking name? Okay. Claudette Colbert, <laughs> Since You Went Away. Ingrid Bergman for Gaslight. And Barbara Stanwyck for Double Indemnity. Mm. That's a heavy hitting uh, crowd there. It's pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> Category. Go, uh, Bergman. <laughs> Bergman for Gaslight. Um, who was the first one again? I said Betty Davis, Greer Garson. I'll just go with Betty Davis because I'm sure she won a bunch. She did not win. It is Ingrid Bergman. Uh, yeah. yeah, she won a bunch too. It's 1-1. One, one. Right. I'm surprised Barbara Stanwyck was nominated. Are you guys surprised? It was a good performance, but I, I don't know. Maybe it was one of those ones yeah. where she was like the highest paid actress at that time. So she was like, she's just going off her name. Yeah. It's like, yeah. you know how they just like, oh, you know, this, you know, Robert Redford's in a movie. I guess we got to mm. give him an Oscar this year. Well, we also have to remember the history of the Oscars and that they, they were created to promote the movie industry and promote Hollywood. So it's more of, you know, an advertisement for the, the locals or not the local, but the big stars of the time. Mm. Next topic, we got next top. Why do I keep saying that? Best fucking category. Jesus. Best director. It can be a topic. Best I don't know. It's not a topic. Sorry, guys. Let's talk. Alfred Hitchcock. Coffee oh, talk. Lifeboat. Henry King. Wilson. Otto Preminger. Laura. Billy Wilder. Double Indemnity. Leo McCary. Going my way. Thank you, again. Henry King, Wilson, Alfred Hitchcock, Lifeboat, Otto Preminger, Laura, Billy Wilder, Double Indemnity, Leo McCary, Going my way. Guess I'm gonna go with Wilder. I'm going with Leo McCary. Answer's Leo McCary. Oh. <laughs> going my way. The fuck is going my way? Do you know that, Graham? No, because the, the the rule is if if it won an Oscar in the past, you will never remember it. That's yeah, true. that's true. <laughs> yeah. It's always the point. it's like You're the one that's right down the yep. middle. You know the secret. Okay, <laughs> best motion picture. Mm. We got since you went away, Wilson, Gaslight, Going My Way. And double indemnity. I'm going to take the Graham theory and go with Wilson. 
I'm going to take the, if you won Oscars in other categories, you should win Best Picture, so going my way. Damn wow. you! Graham is so good at this game. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know budgets, yes. but Oscars. Yeah. You, Give you, me a shitty award, <laughs> and I got this covered. <laughs> yes, it is. Going my way. Graham, beginner's luck, maybe, but beginner's talent, I say. Please clap. Well done. All right, uh, so now we come to the part of the podcast where we can kind of talk about whatever we forgot to talk about. Mm. Miscellaneous, errata, any specific things you want to mention, gentlemen? I got, I got one thing. Please. So as a writer, I, was, I, I find it very interesting, the writing process here, right? Because James Cain wrote the book, did not get hired to write the movie. Raymond Chandler mm. hired to write the movie. Um, and Billy Wilder, already a successful writer, is behind Woody Allen the most nominated writer in history. <laughs> so they, how are two like titans going to work together? Mm. And Raymond Chandler was like an alcoholic. He was an Alcoholics Anonymous at the time. And then Billy Wilder came in uh, and they had to work together. And, and, and this was apparently like Raymond Chandler's first or second script. So he's like, I'll give it to you in a week. And like, <laughs> he didn't realize the process. And so they got it in a week and it was like, this is garbage. And then Billy Wilder's like, we got to go through line by line and make this work. And he says that this is what led like Raymond Chandler back to drinking, <laughs> but they, they, they didn't get along so well that, uh, Billy Wilder, uh, said that you need f for a good collaboration to work. You need a tug of war. You can't mm -hmm. both be pulling in the same direction or you don't have any, you need, you need a, a push yeah. and a pull. So I just think this is sort of interesting because sometimes you're like, you know, does it, sh if you had fun making the movie and your crew got along and everything was great. Does that translate to a great movie? <laughs> right. I don't Almost right, never. <laughs> right. And so, but then if you've got a tug of war and everyone is like nope. fighting and conflicting and there's mm. egos, then and is it is it going to show on the screen or is it going to make a, a great movie? So it's it's sort of a, this timeless question. And you yeah. hope as, as a filmmaker, your hope and dream that oh, because this was so fun to make, it's going to be a great movie, and that just might not be the case, right? Yeah. So. There's so many factors in what a movie and making a movie great yep. that either you can't pull one thing. I think there's just so many exceptions to the rule, and there's so many. I, I don't know. It's almost like trying to like talk about English. Like you know, when you when people like hate the fact that they have to learn English, there's just so many exceptions that you can't really say there's one rule. Sometimes, yeah. and I'm trying to make a shitty analogy. Sorry, <laughs> uh, Sean. Go ahead. Uh, well, I was listening to a uh, I think it was a Harmontown podcast recently, but he had the writer on from uh, RoboCop and Starship. Troopers, and he was talking about his working relationship with Paul Verhoeven. Um, obviously, you know, I'm not necessarily comparing Billy Wilder to Paul mm. Verhoeven. Oh, yeah, uh, Billy Wilder is no, <laughs> nowhere close to his kid. <laughs> that's right, that's right. He had no co-ed shower scenes in his movies. Yeah. That's just unacceptable. Did he have any uh, movies on Mars? Yeah, I don't think true. so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyways, he was talking about how, like, uh, well, first off, there was a working relationship between Paul, Ver Paul Verhoeven and a producer, and apparently they were just at each other's throats the entire time about every single thing and they just hated each other on set. But then he talks to him like 20 years later and he realizes that like, there's no way those movies would have been made without that producer. And that's why they brought him back for the second one. Even though they fucking hated each other, they knew they needed that to push against right. to actually make something that was, you know, worthwhile. Right. And I mean, the other element I take from that though is like a lot of that stuff that I kind of always attributed to the auteurness of Paul Verhoeven actually comes from a group of people people. So, you know, the more you kind of 
look into that and break that stuff down. Like, you know, uh, Verhoeven was kind of a guy that was really open to other input and things. And that's what, you know, he was like the, the arbiter of what was going on there. So, you know, to me, I, I think we get a little too wrapped up in the idea of like, this is a Billy Wilder movie. And this yeah. is like definitely what he did rather than like film being a collaborative, creative sort of work, which, yeah. You know, any one of these missing elements, you don't have the same DP, you don't have the same producer, you don't have the same PA that gets you the right coffee. All of a sudden you're pissed off and not doing things the way that you, you know, were on the last one. So I think, you know, there's a little too much credit in my mind given to directors. Sorry, sir. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I I do see it as, you know, the almost like one of the only like art forms, if we call it that, that is completely collaborative. Like there are so many other arts that exist, but you can do those on your own and in a vacuum. Even a play you can do as a one man show. It's hard to make a one man movie, you know? So it's, yeah, I don't know what I'm saying. Graham, do you, (laughs) do you subscribe to the tug of war theory? Uh, And also (laughs) has, do you have any experiences that have kind of influenced that decision? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I like I said, I, I always wish that the the good process will be the good movie. But you know, <laughs> even if I'm a, even if I'm a, a home alone on the page, right? So let's say I have a, a, a day of writing that's like really inspired, and I feel really optimistic. I'm like, wow, I really nailed it today. This is great. Mm-hmm. And then you have another day, you 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 roll out of bed, and it's just not coming. And you're like, I'm just gonna have to do the work today. I'm just gonna mm-hmm. have to put one key and one word in front of the other, and I'll just get through today because this is garbage. <laughs> and then you show it to somebody and they're like oh yeah i really love that scene the scene that you thought was garbage but that other scene i don't know it doesn't quite work so you never quite really know and maybe the inspiration is who knows what's working and what's not working is the inspiration the thing that's actually going to make it successful and connect with people or are you just fooling yourself you know because you felt better that day and um I, i don't know i don't know the answer to it i know that it's just like it's like a craft that you just have to kind of keep moving forward if it's bad or it's good and yeah. the audience will decide in the end. And there's it's it's almost like like a numbers game or something where it's like <laughs> you sure. just got to punch out more things and some will click and some won't and and obviously if it's a script you can just keep rewriting the parts that don't work. If it's a movie you can keep hopefully editing and trying to find something that works. Um so I think that it, I think there's some merit to it. Um you know in this case I you know Raymond Chandler was like one of the ones who was like, we have this dialogue from the book doesn't work, so we need to uh, add different dialogue. And whereas um, Billy Wilder didn't agree with them at the beginning, mm-hmm. and one of my favorite parts about this movie is the dialogue. So that in that instance, that tug of war yeah. really paid off because Billy Wilder may have gone in a different direction with it, and he listened to Raymond Chandler and allowed him to be influenced in that way, and that's like the, the shining light of the movie. Mm-hmm. So I think that it, it's... Who knows? But uh, hopefully the more smart people you get in a room and more talented people you get in a room, maybe that you'll, if, if there's somebody who at the top doesn't have ego and just can pick the best stuff. Yeah. Uh, is that, is that, does that exist? Is there I some, don't know. Uh, I, again, this is all dream talk. <laughs> yeah. We're in a fantasy, aren't we? Well, I, don't, <laughs> True. I, th- I am fascinated. Uh, you know what? Oh, I would ahead, argue uh, Lauren Michaels. How so? What do you mean? Uh, just as the the guy that's um, you know the the picker of the right group of people. Okay. So he is the guy that Caster, is, yeah, the producer, orchestrator yeah. of yeah. putting the right group of people together and letting them do their thing yeah. rather than micromanaging everything. Yeah. So right. you know, in the end, he still gets the credit, just like any director would. But mm-hmm. he is you know not necessarily having to 
yeah, get in there. I think it's definitely a big skill, but you're, I, I think there's so many fascinating aspects here because there's a difference between writing by yourself and having a writing partner and then right. there's the writer's room. Mm. And there's also the atmosphere on set. You know, Do you want that to be you know, drama filled or do you want that to run smoothly? You know, There's that whole element. If there's a little bit of sometimes there's you know, urgency or drama on set, yeah, maybe that, I, I've seen sets that work better that way. Right. And the actors are more into it. They're yeah. more, everyone's kind of attuned. Right, right, right. Where some that, sets are lackadaisical and, and no one's really doing their hundred percent. Right. I mean, that's almost every set, like the end of the day. Like you have right. two hours left, everyone kicks into gear and all of a sudden everyone's working on high and right. we're just, we're, we're moving and we're chugging. Right. Whereas like, yeah, I just think that's like a mode you can get into and find. I wonder if it has to do with tone and genre, though. Like, if you're, yeah. you know what I mean? If you're doing, like, a, a dark drama, shouldn't mm. everyone be moody and that's the thing? And then if you're doing a comedy, shouldn't everyone be feeling light and, and I don't know, maybe not. I, I think, but if you're yeah. doing, if you're working on a feature for three to six months right. at a time, do yeah. you want to live right. an American horror story or do you just want to go to work <laughs> yeah. and fucking shoot some movies? And have like, some fun, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think about the sound guy on Apocalypse Now or, <laughs> you know, or, or whatever, the, the, per, the costume designer on The Shining, right? Mm. Does she want to have to deal with Kubrick for four months, oh, you know, yeah, getting yeah, screamed yeah. at? I'm sure yeah, it probably makes a better movie, but um, you know, what's yeah. the sacrifice there? I think that's that's a big one. Yeah. I'm always thinking about that, but I I, I don't know. I like smooth sets. Uh, I guess just because I'm a sound guy and I hate drama, and I like just mm. like watching the drama. Cause, well, it makes it an easier day, certainly. Yeah. But. but I think you're right. I always think you know if we could just take those last two hours of the day and extrapolate that to the rest of the day, we would yeah. get. 30 pages done, you yeah, know? That's, that's the uh, Clint Eastwood method. He does his eight-hour days, and yeah, everyone right. knows that going in, and you show up, you do your job, and you're right to work. There's none of this bullshitting around for two hours while everyone kind of meanders around set that we get normally. Yeah. Um, any other uh, miscellaneous stuff you guys want to talk about? I got a few random bullshit. Throw it out there. Um, I just want to mention Edward G. Robinson. We didn't quite talk about him a little yeah. bit. It's my mm -hmm. first experience with the man. His <laughs> his reputation preceded him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I've heard a million impressions before I even heard his voice. And his voice is honestly underwhelming. It's not even, mm. I know it's wonderful. It's just not as over the top as I, I thought it would be. It's the same problem we have with like the Chaplin stuff where yeah. we've seen the iterations exactly. of it our yeah, entire yeah, yeah. life. Right, right. We've seen it like in cartoon yep, voices exactly. and totally amplified that going back to the original just doesn't have as much because everyone that did it after him is putting more and more stank on it. Yeah. Uh, I also just think he's world fucking class. True. The man is <laughs> goddamn right? good. Yeah. Oh my God. Some, yeah. Okay, uh, especially the monologue on the suicides. Yeah. That was out of this world good. It was all one take and then he took a drink of water and spilled it on himself. Yeah. Right. Goddamn. Yeah. I, I, I just, everything was pitch perfect. The, the yeah. word gravitas comes to mind. Like he just had that like sort of like, you know, He's the guy that's in charge, you know, no matter yep. who else he's around, he might be the shortest dude in the yeah. room, right. but he is still like the guy it's that, like you know, the powerhouse. Yep. Yeah. He pulls focus. He feels like, yeah, he, his voice comes from like somewhere deep. I don't know. Yeah. And, and it's, he's so yeah. quick and so yep. on it. Yeah, for sure. He's great. And yeah. just present too. So yeah. again, it's that thing where you're like, you can see that it's not just an actor waiting to say their line. It's an actor that is reacting to the situation that's going on. Right. And he is so present in the moment that, you know, it is just a completely believable performance. I, yeah, I thought he was the best in this yeah. movie, yeah, by yeah, far, yeah, best for performance. Sure. Uh, the most believable. I, he felt like a theater actor. Like he's got that theater training. He's just a live kind yeah. of guy. Yeah. Um, and when they gave him those monologues, he was just. Yeah, this dialogue in him is Good, good match. Yeah. Definitely. Um, 
yeah. Uh, anything else about the writing process? I'm, I'm curious. Was there any stuff? What was this guy's name? One more time. Raymond. Raymond Chandler. Raymond Chandler. What else? Did he write anything else? Uh, the Big Sleep, I think. Okay. He did. Uh, he created the Marlowe character, unless I'm confusing everyone. So Marlowe is like uh, the Humphrey Bogart character. Jesus. Uh, I was thinking of the Big Chill. I'm like, my <laughs> yeah, right. Totally different. Um, uh, I think there's, you know, these guys. It's always very, you always get them confused, but it's. But then I think he also was Stranger on a Train with Hitchcock after this. So mm. I think that ah. this like inspired Hitchcock to get him. And, and actually, Stranger on a Train. This is like train connections. There's yeah. a lot of, like, you know, straight, I, straight down the line. <laughs> I, I, this is my first time seeing this movie, but I always get Strangers on a Train and Double Indemnity confused. Right. Uh, they do seem very similar. Uh, we were talking about beforehand, um, but I uh, uh, I think it is Throw Mama from the Train is uh, Strangers on a Train, not this uh, one. Which, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah. Okay. I, I don't really have much more, I guess. Um, yeah. I don't know. Do you guys have anything else? Sorry to bring this to a lull here. Jesus, man. Oh, Dead Pigeon. I heard Dead Pigeon. What the fuck is Dead Pigeon? Pigeon's a dude. Oh. Stooly, Pigeon, Stool uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, that was that, the one idiom I really threw uh, me. Because he threw it out at the beginning, which kind of made me think. Because when she's standing at the top of the stairwell with the, or the stairway with the, the towel on, he asked if any pigeons were out there or any pigeons saw her. And that, yeah, I didn't get that at first. I, I, thought, I, I was like, actual birds? I was like, oh, I wasn't right, sure. Right. I, I thought he just meant like, you know, did, did the I'd love to be a fly on the wall in that situation or something. Yeah. But then later on when he used pigeons as like just a colloquialism for people or dudes in general, I assume that's what he meant. Right. I, I honestly thought it was about bird poop. I was like, oh, <laughs> you get the birds pooping on you outside? Lucky you. Congratulations. You really, you really thought there was a nah, poop that joke was in the only movie. thing I could think of. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, that's a pretty good joke. Yeah. Nice. I like that. Poop tumor. Jesus. Okay. Um, I think we've come to the, the finale of our podcast here, guys, where we, we rate the film. Oh, yeah. We got to do yeah, that. Yeah, we got to do that, Sean. Sorry. I know you want to. Out of 10? Uh, you can do it. And, and is this in like historical context or is this like a, yeah. a, a, against today's <laughs> movies? You can't really judge a movie from the 1940s against today's movies, can you? I, I mean, that's kind of up to you. That's always yeah. like the thing right. that we fucking wrestle with right. is, you know, how much of which lens do we view this yeah. through yeah, or how yeah, much yeah. of that. Honestly, to me, my review comes down to like, how did I feel watching this movie? Right. You know, am I going to want to watch this again? But, you know, obviously, if you are um, afraid of woke culture, other things do come into consideration as well. Right. Um I don't know. If- I, I mean, I give a little points for historical context sure. or, uh, you know, if you're the first and if you're very influential, you know, like if you're uh, the Velvet Underground, you yeah. know, their music's meh, but they're very influential. Whoa. whoa. Sorry. That's another that's podcast a, right there. That's a hot take. Sorry for that hot take. That's a hot take. Yeah. You're throwing that in at the end here? Yeah, I subtract points for subtitles. Oh. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. I hate reading. Oh, gosh. Uh, if, I, if I wanted to read, do I wouldn't subtract, go to a movie. Do you subtract points for dubbing? Um, bad dubbing. Yeah, certainly. Um, is but, there good dubbing? Um, it can be, you know, I, it does almost work occasionally. Um, if you watch some cartoons with rap music, that works well. Um, but yeah, uh, this movie, I would probably rate a three out of five stars. Um, I thought it was really enjoyable. Um, I do like that sort of witty banter, comedic aspect of things. Um, I always respect something that goes for comedy above just straight up drama. 
Um, I do think comedy is just one of the hardest things to really pull off, but especially <clears throat> mixed into the greater context of the movie, um, you know, when you have those layers where you can go between those like comedic beats, but still have like a, you know, compelling and interesting and dramatic story. I think that is kind of where cinema like truly comes alive when like all of those genres are kind of working at the same time. Um, but again, I do have to subtract for, you know, the acting wasn't as great. There are some weird moments. Um, I don't know how much I'm going to rewatch this movie. Um, it was enjoyable, but certainly uh, not the best thing I've seen in the world. But I do under I do like it as kind of like, like I said, that sort of proto-noir where it kind of like establishes a lot of the tropes. And it did feel like loose and free, like we said. So I don't know. Three out of five sounds right. Okay. Um, I'm going to give this a eight out of 10. Mm. Uh, I actually really enjoyed this one. I maybe even get an eight and a half out of 10, honestly, because it's got a lot of stuff going for it. it the acting you're right isn't best, but Edward G. Robinson makes up for all yeah, that. True. Um, but the thing is the story's good. It just moves. It doesn't yeah. lull, which is really something I always notice in older movies that we've been watching, yeah. um, which is really, really rare, especially for 44. This is way earlier than some of our 50s stuff we've been watching. So I was very impressed with that. Um, the music's great. The music really does sell me. And it, it could be listened to. There's a lot of great light motifs. I mean, you can listen to like just as a score and you you know, put a CD on your car. CD in your car. What year is this? <laughs> Okay. Jesus Christ. Sorry. I'm Are you from the 90s? I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Okay. Anyways, it's a good movie. Um, it, I think it does hold up. I might not watch it again, honestly. You're right, Sean. But I could, there's a lot of funny lines, a lot of yeah. snappy dialogue that did make me laugh. And I can see me kind of going through it again and seeing which lines I might have not quite, you know, got, you know, missed some little moments. I also it moves feel, fast. You know? yeah, yeah. I, I think one of the reasons I didn't go higher than three stars is from the today's lens, it does feel a little bit like a movie the wrong frat house would love for the wrong reasons. So there's like, there's this character there that is just very MAGA, for lack of a better mm. word. And um, anti frat house right here. Yeah. <laughs> well, specific frat house that okay. would, you know. Um, the Tri-Lamb. Oh, no, not the Tri-Lambs. No. That's the nerds. Well, I mean, Tri-Lambs is rape culture these days, so oh, that's God. a whole different oh, uh, debate to yeah. go into. Yeah, the, that's true. Even the nerdy frats were bad. Well, I mean, you know, just even uh, Revenge of the Nerds itself yeah. is not necessarily considered the most woke movie these days. Hmm. Um, okay, so, Graham, do you got your review? Yeah, you um, I was going to say eight to eight and a half no. also. Okay. In Out of 20. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> out of 10. And for me, there's a few reasons. I, I can't really take it out of the 40s, I, I, no matter how hard I try. Yeah. And so when you compare it to other movies from that era, just like you said, this one just keeps on rolling. It's so yeah. entertaining. It's like it, there's no dull spots where I have to be like, okay, can we fast forward a few scenes or something like that? It's just like it just clips, right? In every scene, they're, they're putting, they're, they're pitting characters together that have a really intense, uh, um, you know, situation happening. And it just, feels like it's moving uh really well um the dialogue is second to none like i just feel like i feel like it's poetry like i feel like it's not real dialogue it's not yeah. human beings speaking it's a poet speaking in this really rad way kind <laughs> of uh in this sort of film noir way and i think that um i just think there's so many lines in there that i was like wow that's just that's just so cool to hear um and then um 
I just love the look of it. I think it's it just fits the the, the content uh, and uh, and to know that he was the first that was coming up with that look and how influential it was. I kind of can't take it out of what it's it sort of it sort of spawned its own uh, subgenre, you know, yeah, like yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, maybe it's not core film noir, but I feel like that. What's the definition of film noir, right? Because it's like. I think film noir number one has this sort of psychosexual babe femme okay. fatale who's who's um, manipulating everything. Hmm. You've got um, the main character of the plot committing a crime, so hmm. he's a bad dude, right? And he's like lurking in the shadows, and he's got a secret to hide. And then um, the stark shadows with the dusty lights and the Venetians and all that. So if that is your definition of film yeah. noir, this is pretty. This is the prototype, right? Honestly, yeah. I never, until you just said it, considered the story elements of film noir. To me, film noir has always just been that look, right? And right, that, right. that you know that that just feel of a movie, like pointing out that you know the femme fatale is a portion of that. Does you know make ring true and make a lot more sense um, in that aspect? Yeah, I, I would certainly lean more towards um, film noir. But again, visually, I just you know right. a little too bright. Right, <laughs> right, 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 right. Something you mentioned I really loved was you mentioned that, that every scene had conflict. Yeah. I, I, now that looking back, you're totally right. Yeah. And not just conflict, there was like legit suspense. Yeah. Um, whether it's, you know, uh, Barbara Stanwyck standing outside the door and overhearing yeah. the inside. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, you know, like you said, Edward G. Robinson's in the background, like walking towards, yep. you know, uh, yeah. the main character. There's a lot of that stuff. Able to start a car. Yeah, yeah, the great, yep. great example too. It's just yeah. no scene really is just two people talking. Yep. There's two people yeah. talking, but there's always an exterior force. There's always some suspense coming in and it's not... Uh, fake. It's all kind of with the story, motivated by really real elements yep. in the story, and it all fits. Yeah. So it, it works smoothly. I yeah. Think. If you think of like, even like he's going back to his car and the daughter's in the car, right? right? Or he's talking to the big boss, Edward S. Norton Jr., and <laughs> in walks Barbara Stanwyck. It's like, whoa. Yeah. Oh, and then it's like, oh, we pass a guy in the hallway and we go into the room, and then suddenly that guy is uh, is a, a character yep. a witness, mm. you know? And you're like, wow, every, every, there's like a, the pressure's on from yeah. the opening shot to, yeah. to the end. And I think that that's hard to architecture as a writer. And I think that, to be able to pull it off in this era, in my mind, the the, the sort of architecture, the structure of the drama uh, holds up. That I, I gotta give that gotta give that points for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. Next week, I don't know who's actually going next week on Cellular Breakdown. No so whatever, we'll, we'll, you'll find out when yeah. we, you listen to the podcast. We usually announce the next movie we're gonna watch. Um, but now we can also do any uh, recommendations. Oh, yeah. If you guys want to talk about any movies you've seen, TV shows you want to recommend, anything, mm. I don't know, or any of your own projects, Graham, you want to recommend? Well, hey. You want to plug um, yourself? I, I, uh, I could plug myself, but I would, pr- I, there's two <laughs> things I've seen recently. Okay. That, so I saw Joker yesterday. Mm. Uh, should we talk, should, we, should sure. we talk about the Joker? We can. Go for have it. You seen, has anyone else seen the Joker? I have. You have. I yeah. have not, but please. So um, I, I liked it. I liked it a lot, um, but I, I, it makes me nervous because of everything now is IP from like a, yeah, yeah. a, 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 um, a you know a there comic has to be book an existing, existing property. Yeah, in order for it to be- so it's like Taxi Driver doesn't exist in, anymore, but Joker can, you know. And so I, I I think that there's something sad about that, but I do, but I did think that the if you're going to make a comic book movie, at least there's a whole range of comic book movies you can make now. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just uh, guys in tights doing crazy right. shit. With yeah. special effects, at least it's like okay, we can do 
the like indie anti-hero brooding mm-hmm. you know uh, uh, character we can do like Logan was kind of like a straight yeah. up action movie yeah. you've Logan. got Winter Soldier that's like a, a, a spy thriller so it's like it, it in the, the the good part about it is that the the scope of comic book movies is growing and expanding and the palette is growing and expanding the bad part is that that's the only thing left yeah it's colonizing it's, everything else yeah it's eaten literally everything else My- so th- Okay. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. Yeah. My my hope is that this is more of a bridge to that filmmaking rather than a a coffin that we are sealing ourselves in. <laughs> right. So I, I'm hoping that this opens us up to just more story in character driven pieces and things that are interesting rather than just big shiny things spinning and sparking. Right. Like, ho- you know, I I hope that we don't just see this as a branding thing and they start to understand that, you know, people do want actual stories that, you know, have people that we either, you know, have some feeling about whether right. or not we love them or hate them. There is, there needs to be more depth than what we've been given for the last 20 years. Yeah. I do you think that's possible. You think that some young filmmaker will see Joker and be like, you know what? I can make this film, but not in a superhero context. Or not, not this film, but something like it. In an- I don't think it's about the young filmmakers. I think the power of Joker is convincing the suits. Okay. Um, I think the and it, it can go one of two ways, and we can either go this dark route where everything has to have a comic book or everything has to have an IP. You can put whatever bent or you know take whatever script and apply it to this comic book, but in the end, we have to have this IP. Or they realize that at the core, we are storytellers and we are telling the best stories, and they have to figure out how to market those things rather than just relying on the IP that already exists. Do you, uh, Graham, do you have a, do you, th- you opinion opti- about yeah, it? Yeah, I do. I do, have, I do have an opinion about it. Yeah. <laughs> so my, my opinion goes to my second, to my second, re- uh, uh, recommendation. So I think that, um, unfortunately what I, I think that the studio heads are going to, or the stu- executives are going to look at this and they're not going to say, oh, wow, it was an interesting character study that got people to the, to the theaters. They're going to say, oh, you can do anything. Mm-hmm. As long as you include a comic book character, yeah. that's what I think that's the, the lesson is going to be. Yeah. So what I think is going to happen is that those filmmakers who want to make those movies without the IP, they go to streaming. Yeah. So I think you get a miniseries, which is I, I watched Unbelievable, which is the miniseries I, I would recommend. Mm. Um, loved it. Where's uh, that? It's on. Um, Not to put you on the spot there. But it's somewhere uh, on I, the internet. I think it's on Netflix. <laughs> right on. Um, Don, Susanna Grant, uh, ex- executive produced it, wrote it. Uh, Lisa Jolodenko directed uh, the pilot uh, episode. It's a miniseries, like eight, eight episodes based on a true story. But amazing, amazing stuff. But it's like that's when we got, I don't know how old you guys are. I'm really old. <laughs> when I got into this business, those we wanted to make these interesting character 90s mm-hmm dramas indie we called them Sundance movies or whatever now yeah. those movies are now streaming yeah. they're they're miniseries so if you have that idea you expand it to eight episodes and you've got yourself a season yeah you know and that's that and is that such a bad thing maybe not maybe it's not a bad thing maybe we just change the venue in which we consume um and we just have to change our idea of what going to the theater is because as long as we're getting those stories and they're really high quality and they've got like a-list talent attached then mm. does it matter if i watch it on my home plasma whatever or or do i you know what i mean i don't know i think it's the experience of going to a movie for an hour and a half um some people are obsessed with that i know we have a friend eric wheeler who refuses to watch tv 
because wow. he has to watch it in these chunks of that's a feature, that's how you need to tell the story, and I can't watch it if it's longer than a couple wow. episodes. Yeah. Uh, I do actually kind of see your point. I like that. It, it lets writers almost like get more space and, and be, feel free to expand, and you know, and and you don't have to be restricted by an hour and a half or two hours or whatever it is. So yeah. I look kind of like it. I. I do think a year ago I would have agreed with you wholeheartedly, um, but for the last year I have been doing the AMC challenge, uh, the $20 a month, three movies a week. So I've been trying to go see as many movies as I can. And the, the one of the big reasons I started doing that was previously for the last 20 or 25 years, I would go and see the two Marvel movies that came out every year, the Star Wars movie, and that was about it. And I have definitely noticed a huge difference in watching movies in a theater versus watching movies at home on Hulu or whatever. Um, first off, there's just the stopping. So stopping to go to the bathroom, stopping to do whatever, you know, you'll break the movie up, you'll come back. It does lo lose momentum. Mm -hmm. um, but secondly, just distraction. You know, the fact that you're in a movie theater, you're not going to pull out a phone. But even here, when we're watching movies together, I, you know, I reach for the phone occasionally. I try not to, but you know, there is just a different mentality being in that theater and being in that experience and experiencing that movie, certainly versus watching it on a home screen or a phone, even, you know, all of that stuff is going to be um, I think it really affects the way that we enjoy the movie. And I think I've enjoyed a lot of movies a lot more than I would have if I just tried to watch them at home. So I, I don't know that there's necessarily a right or a wrong there. Obviously this Netflix type content needs to be there and there's a huge market for it. Um, but I just wonder like if there was only a big screen available for that for a certain amount of time, would there be more reverence for some of these things rather than like the Netflix stuff that just kind of feels disposable almost. I think it's sad that the, the networks are going to get the wrong lesson out of this. Yeah. You kind of said it there. I mean, you're probably right. I'm slightly optimistic that you're wrong. <laughs> I'm, I'm pessimistic I'm, I hope, for these guys. I hope that you're right on that one. Yeah. I don't know. Well, on that note, um, <laughs> to the death um, of the industry. Yeah, I will throw and out, to I'll be throw continued. out a recommendation there. Um, a little movie I saw recently called Little Monsters. Uh, not the one you're thinking of with Fred, Fred Savage, Savage yeah. and uh, um, Terry Rossio, Ted Elliott, uh, uh, Howie Mandel. Uh, he was the the monster, wasn't he? Oh, could be. I yeah. don't even know. I think Howie Mandel was the guy no, in the makeup. Funny. Um, but either way, no. Little Monsters 2019 is a uh, a small little movie about an Australian guy that takes his nephew on a field trip to the zoo, and then zombies break out. <laughs> um, so you know, it's a uh, like a zombie comedy thing. But um, I thought the zombie genre had been you know played out and um not interesting anymore but they actually find found some interesting things to do with it um fun little movie josh gad is in it i don't know that he needed to be in it but he was and you know it was amusing so yeah well i think it's going to be a hulu movie though so check out little monsters probably in two weeks when it's out of theaters All right Cool. Um, Graham, do you got anything of your own that you would like to plug? Any, I don't know, any, any you got an Twitter Insta you want us to blow up? Twitter Instagram. Instagram. Insta. <laughs> it, my, my Instagram is actually Instagram. <laughs> believe it or not. Do you really? That is actually your It's Instagram 360. Ah. Uh, yes. Uh, it's great. It's maybe the Hit best. Hit me up That's on it. Instagram. Yeah, you must Mouth have gotten early for that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Sean, what about other others? Uh, PBC? Any t Twitters you want to do? Oh, you want to hit it? Okay. Yeah, you hit it. 
Fine then. No, don't you tell me what to do? We've got all the shows on the podcast network. We've got going down on South Park, Pilot Tinkering, Type Report, Calling Literally Literary, and this show that you're currently listening to, Silly Weight Breakdown. Yeah. Uh, check out the website, podcast.com, uh, and uh, check out the shop. We've got the t shirts and the mugs and all sorts of stuff you can get with our yeah. logo and support the show for the merch and the whatnot. Uh, check out Joey at uh, J O E B O N I D R on the Twitters. And you can tweet me at text before calling on the tweets as well. Yep, that's about it. Thanks, everyone. And thank you, Graham. Thanks for having we me. Appreciate you having me come by. You're always welcome to come back. Right. Pick any movie you want. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. God, turn the music down when I'm talking. Your sound mixer. Bye. Appreciate it, guys. Bye.